as an entrepreneur, you never really know what's going to succeed. And so what happens is you take your best shot. Often you are wrong, but lo and behold, your off-target shot hits something else. <laughs> and then my recommendation is, first of all, you take the money and you declare victory. And I think that probably 90% of the successes in the world are like that. Yeah, Google started as a consulting firm. Apple, they're wrong so many times. I think it's not where you start, it's how fast you move. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which we delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. How do you become a powerful evangelist for your company, product, idea, or movement? Now, the original definition of evangelism comes from a Greek word, which means bringing the good news, which is something that we all want to do, right? Spread the good news about how great or important our venture is, our idea is, the change that we want to make is, and what a difference it will make. Not only that, but do it in such a way that others feel compelled not just to jump on it themselves, but take that good news and share it with everybody else that they know. Which, if it really is good news, shouldn't be that hard, right? Well, maybe not right. My interest in the world of evangelism started about 10 years ago. And at that point, I had been working in the world of influence, building influencers and thought leaders for about a decade and I suddenly started to notice something strange. I started to notice that the word influence and the word influencer were changing. They were starting to take on a whole new meaning, slowly at first, and then almost as if it happened overnight. And where previously we would have used those words to describe a person or a collection of people with deep mastery in something, with clear purpose or expertise, a trusted authority who could powerfully communicate their ideas in such a way that it moved people to take action. And now suddenly, it felt like I'd woke up and the word meant something completely different. One that involved some weird combination of social media, teenagers, selfies, filters, clothes, cats, commerce, and live-streamed zombie battles. Now, none of which I have any issue with in isolation. I just want to point that out. I love a good zombie fight as much as anybody else. Yet, other than finding it hard to describe what I did for a living anymore, descriptions that didn't sound like I work with influencers, but not like that teenage Instagram version of an influencer, I was also left feeling like we'd lost something really important, a, a distinction of what to aim towards as communicators, founders, or leaders, and one that had nothing to do with popularity followers, clicks or likes, and one that had everything to do with impact. So basically, I needed a new word. And it was then that I came across the work of my guest today. 
Guy Kawasaki is the previous chief evangelist at Apple. A part of that role, he popularized the word evangelist in business and the concepts of evangelism marketing. Since then, he has published several books, including one that needs to be on your must-read list, Enchantment, The Art of Changing Hearts, Minds, and Actions. In his latest commitment to Guy's Golden Rule, which you'll hear more about in a little while, Guy now works as chief evangelist at graphic design platform Canva. In this episode, we will dive deep into the key to the 30-second elevator pitch and how he would take someone that can show versus someone that can tell any day of the week. The killer bottom line question, what are you a painkiller for? When it comes to building urgency around your idea or service, I can't recommend highly enough that you spend some time with that question. How to localize the pitch so that you immediately cut through the white noise. The trick of the ask a simple way to quickly get the attention of those who are generally too busy or too important to give it, including both of our experiences trying to get guests onto our podcasts in the early days. Why Steve Jobs never worried about building his personal brand and what to focus on instead. The power of creating a mantra rather than a mission statement and the mastery it takes to do that. And finally, the myth of foresight. Why no one ever really knows what's going to work. So the more experiments you can run, the better. As a reflection point, um, a conversation I feel like I've been having a lot recently and again as part of this interview is the amount of times we focus on driving our product or service first. When in fact, if we really want to cut through, what we need to do first is focus on driving a conversation. Focus on the cause and then get to the painkiller that's going to help with that cause. Oh, and also a question that I've been personally reflecting on a lot since this interview. How long does it currently take you to tell your story? And if the answer is longer than it took me to ask that question, then it's probably too long. Also, do not forget to hop on and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, which is available on my website, juliemasters.com. It's in the show notes. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most impactful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address. It will be in your inbox before you can blink. No spam, no charge. Juice it for all it is worth. On that note, sit back, stride on, cycle out, whatever your preferred method of transport or no transport at all, and enjoy the fascinating and masterful human being that is Guy Kawasaki. Welcome to the podcast, Guy Kawasaki. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. I want to kick off the way that I usually kick off the podcast, and that is to ask you if there's any particular idea at the moment that struck you and is having an influence on the way that you look at things and the way that you think about things it can be related to your field or completely unrelated to your field. Anything? I mean, any idea? Any idea. What the theory being, I'll tell you the theory, yes. theory being that people who have amazing ideas and people who are at the cutting edge of great thinking tend to come across things faster than anybody else or recognize things faster than anybody else. So is there something that's just kind of caught your attention that you think, I reckon that's going to that's gonna be big? Well, if you're asking about a specific product or service, 
I'm I'm on one tidal wave right now, which is Canva. But for really much of my career, I have been pursuing things that democratize things. So Macintosh democratized computing, both in terms of user interface, consistency of the experience, et cetera, et cetera. So Macintosh made it possible for more people to use computers. And then fast forward to the end of my career, Canva has democratized design so more people can be better communicators uh, because Canva empowers people to design their own graphics. So I'm into democratizing things. Can you just, in, in layman's language, what does democratization mean in this the space? It means that you don't have to be rich, white, and male to use it. <laughs> Cutting to the chase. <laughs> that was it. That was a chase cut. Just mm-hmm. that. And why is that so powerful? <laughs> because most of the world is not rich, white, and male. <laughs> Another good chase cut. <laughs> <laughs> Got any hard questions? <laughs> I'm going to get into democratization a little bit more because I, there's a whole world there that I want to explore. But I just want to go backwards for a second. Now, you started out in the, the early days of Apple. And you were Mm -hmm. out there marketing Macintosh computers. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking it's easy to fall into a trap there and go, well, that would have been an easy sell. Knowing what we know now about Apple and Mac, did it feel that way at the time? Did it feel? No, obviously not, because I quit Apple twice and I turned Steve Jobs down for a third uh, position. So if I, quote unquote, knew that Apple was going to be a trillion dollar company and the most successful blah, blah, blah. I would have stayed. So obviously I quit twice and, and turned down one. So uh, shame on me. But yeah, I don't think anybody could have predicted that. And uh, maybe Steve Jobs, quote unquote, knew. But Steve Jobs knew a lot of things that didn't come true, too. So, yeah, it's, if anything, it has uh, it has broadened my horizons to now consider the fact that the grass is not always greener. And sometimes you should just fertilize and water the grass you're standing on. What was your first big win when you were marketing the Mac? Well, uh, I wasn't really marketing the Mac. I was evangelizing the Mac to software developers. So I had a little function, which was to convince software and hardware companies to make Mac products. Uh, I was not in the general marketing, you know, B2C kind of thing. And so every victory for me was that another software developer started a Macintosh version and ideally shipped it. (laughs) And was there something, I mean, we're going to get into a whole bunch of things, but just again, while we're chase cutting, was there a flip in your brain when you first started doing that where you thought, "Uh aha, this, this particular tweak is what tends to get traction here? Well, the, the, the flip occurred when I first saw Macintosh. So I had been an Apple II user, so I knew a little bit about using a computer. And I knew just enough to know that when I saw Macintosh with its graphical user interface, that this was a big deal. So back then, and this is 1983, most computers were character-driven. So you had a terminal that was 24 by 80, 
And graphics was almost an oxymoron. You might have used X's and O's to create something, but you certainly didn't have Mac Paint and those kinds of things. So the religious experience, the flipping of the bit, occurred definitely when I first saw Macintosh. Um, that was kind of an instant thing. And you've talked before in the topic of evangelism, which is a term that you went on to to help popularize, that you don't you don't push a product or a service which is you know a, a bucket that's easy to fall into. You promote a cause. You you drive a cause. How did you how do you go about doing that? How do you go about identifying the cause? Let's start there. Well, first, um, the the product or service has to have a cause. So uh, it's very difficult to slap lipstick on a pig and come out with anything more than a pig with lipstick. So I've been fortunate in my career to have found or been found by things that are possible to evangelize. I started with Macintosh and I'm ending with Canva. In between, I did a lot of thrashing. So this is by no means a guarantee that just because you think you're an evangelist, um, it's going to be successful. And I call this guy's golden touch, which is not that whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's golden touch is whatever's gold guy touches. And Canva and Macintosh were freaking 24 karat gold. I read about guy's golden touch actually a number of times and it <laughs> It definitely intrigued me, which raised the natural question of how do you, you said, you know, whatever's gold guy touches, how do you work out whether something is gold? And I'll just lead you a second here and you can either put a full stop at the end of that and take it in a different direction or do whatever you want. I don't care. It's your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said, I read that you use a two by two matrix. Yes. To figure it out. Can you just walk us through what that looks like? Yes. So this two by two matrix, uh, which McKinsey will charge you $5 million to understand, uh, you measure the degree of differentiation or uniqueness on the vertical axis. And on the horizontal axis, you measure the degree of value. So the further you are out to the right, the more valuable. The higher you are, the more unique or differentiated you are. So I think all of marketing and really all of life boils down to being high and to the right, meaning that you have a unique product or service and that product or service has a valuable function. So Macintosh at the time was unique and valuable. There was no other you know, graphical user interface. Canva, unique and valuable, that it has democratized graphics and um, it has done it in a way that has enabled millions and millions of people to become great designers. And that's unique and valuable. There are a handful of unique and valuable things. iPod, when it first came out, was unique and valuable. It was the only device with a human interface that a mere mortal could operate. It had a wide selection of music from six publishers. It was easy to upload the music. It was inexpensive to upload the music, 99 cents a song, and it was legal to upload the music. So if you took all those factors, there was nothing in the market that had all of them. And you've talked, you've talked before about that's a framework that you can use with a brand, with a, with a product, with a service, but it's also, which kind of interested me more, something that you can use for yourself, for your yes. own brand when you're talking about yourself. Well, how's the, is there any difference there between how you use it in that case? Not really. I mean, I, I would even bring it into your personal life that if you are a unique and valuable spouse, you know, you, 
you pretty much have it made. Um, <laughs> it's it's when you offer that's the same thing that everybody else. Huh? I said that's depressing for me. Why? You're not unique and valuable? <laughs> I don't know if I could articulate it. I'm going to try now. <laughs> TMI. I don't want to know. <laughs> um, so, well, okay, we'll step. We'll take it one step back from spouse. But think of yourself as an employee. If you are a unique and valuable employee, if only you can do something and that something is valuable to the company, life is good. Life is good. But you were right there when you said you need to be able to articulate it. And that, I think it's just worth spending a little bit of time on that because I find the conversation about what makes our brand, what makes our product, what makes our service unique is one that you hear fairly frequently within boardrooms, within advertising companies. But what tends to happen when it comes to how we describe what we do, what we contribute, is that we don't ask that question anymore. We kind of just dive into the world of white noise, kind of go <laughs> go find someone else who does what I do, copy, paste into my own profile. Why is it so much harder to do for ourselves than it is to do for a brand, product, service? Well, I think it's because many people, um, they live in a vacuum. and they think, let's take the example of a pitch. So you're pitching a venture capitalist for funding and you stand up and you say, I have patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting, enterprise class, scalable product. And you think you just made yourself high into the right. You are the only product that is patent pending, curve jumping, you know, <laughs> enterprise scalable product or service. Um, but in fact, you know, you were the nine o'clock meeting. There's a 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, they go and play golf. So, you know, there are 10 pitches that day. Every one of the stinking CEOs said the same thing. And so I, I, I swear people don't realize that that's the world they live in. To, to use uh, another analogy, um, I think that life is, life can also be explained in dating apps. And so there are two kinds of dating apps. One dating app is eHarmony. You fill out 29 fields of personal psychographic information to find your life partner. The other kind of dating app is Tinder, and you are either interesting or not interesting, and people make an instant decision. I think life is Tinder. So you have to wrap your mind around life is Tinder, and everybody's using the same adjectives. So if you want to position yourself as unique and valuable, you have to really be able to articulate why you are unique and valuable. And does that start with going on to, I mean, I'm just throwing my own perspective in here, start with going on to the profiles, the way that your competitors are describing themselves and literally picking the opposite word, deliberately different well, words? Well, you, you hit on an interesting concept. I mean, I, I call this the opposite test, which is you know, go listen to your competition and see if they're saying the opposite of you. So a pitch that is we're patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting, enterprise class scalable product will work if your competition is saying we are a piece of shit that is slow, hard, not proprietary, not useful, uh, not unique. I mean, if if your competition is saying the opposite of you, that's fine. But if they're probably saying we too are patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting, revolutionary. I mean, I've never heard a CEO says, well, we have a piece of crap that is mediocre in quality and mediocre in performance and hard to use. 
I mean, if if 99.9% of the people said that, then it would be easy to to position yourself high and to the right. So where do you go from there? Where do you go? I mean, other than, you know, this is our product. It doesn't suck. Like, where do you, we are all this. Now what? Where do you go? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's hard to, to say, um, we are this and our competition is not because everybody's saying the same freaking thing. So I, I would make the case that a demo is a very good way to position yourself high and to the right because you are showing people why you're high and to the right as opposed to telling people you're high and to the right. So you know, if, if I had to show Canva versus, to take the extreme example, Photoshop, I guarantee you in 60 seconds, I show you why Canva is better than Photoshop for 99% of the world. And so, and and that's done with a demo. I would show the, the Photoshop opening screen where you have a big blank screen with about 2000 tools around it. And I would show you the Canva screen where you, you pick a template and in 60 seconds, you know, you could be finished with your graphic. So it, Contrast that to how most people would do it and say, well, we have a really easy to use powerful product. Well, guess what? The Photoshop people say they have a powerful and easy to use product too. Duh. So, you know, Photoshop said, oh, our product is really hard to use and it's really expensive. It's going to take you weeks to master it. Okay, fine. But they don't do that. It's not going to happen. You've, I've heard you talk about that before and you call it localizing the pitch. Is there is there anything more involved in localizing the pitch? One is have have a demo that shows rather than tell. Show yeah. rather than tell. Well, to to tell you the truth, localizing uh, is slightly different. Localizing is the concept that instead of saying that we are on some kind of mega trend, um, you bring it down to a person. So I'll give you a contrast using Canva. So the if you were trying to use a non-local description, you would say graphic communications is going to be big. Okay, that's the mega trend. What you should say is, listen, if you are tired of waiting for your graphic design department or you're tired of submitting uh, proposals and reading proposals uh, from graphic designers, or you're just tired of waiting. You just want to make your graphic inexpensively and easily so you can be a better communicator minutes from now than use Canva. That's a very different pitch. It's about you, one person with one computer, making great graphics as opposed to the graphical user interface revolution. So you've got two things there. You've got, which kind of counterintuitive, but go together. So one is you're positioning a cause which you're driving a conversation as opposed to a a product or a service. So know the conversation that you're driving. And the other one is make it local, make it specific. So you've kind of got the clouds and the dirt in there. So am am I guessing that you, you start out with the conversation and then you move your way down into, and this is what specifically this means for you, check it out? I would say that that depends on who's in the audience. If I were talking to an audience at a computer show or a, you know, someplace where there's a diverse community, I would start at the higher level. But let's say that I was talking to only real estate brokers, okay? Mm -hmm. So if I were talking to only real estate brokers, I would say, listen, you all have pictures of new property listings. 
and you all are trying to roll your own and make a flyer for that property listing. Let me show you what Canva can do. That's a really niche sell, right? That's just for the listing real estate broker, as opposed to we all have problems communicating and here's a better way to do graphics. Why do you feel like we do that? Is it is it fear? Is it just legacy that that's the way that we've seen it done when advertising and marketing was this big kind of macro concept? Yeah, um, I think all of the above. I don't really, I've never thought about that. Uh, it could just be that, you know, people have never been taught better. And they don't have, honestly, they don't have a lot of good examples to follow. Uh, I mean, who most people, if you go to most conferences, people start off by saying we have for the 15th time patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting, enterprise cl class, scalable, innovative product. Everybody starts off that way. You can hear like just in the background, the scrubbing out of a thousand pictures. <laughs> I, I, I would say yeah, a very good rule of thumb is remove all adjectives. Because the number of adjectives in the universe is finite. So it's very unlikely that you're going to come up with an adjective that positions you uniquely. I want to just add to that for a second. <laughs> Sorry. I want something when we, we're talking about, let's got to elevate pitches for a second because that's just the point. Okay. That's the pointy end, right, of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you have said that you should be able to explain anything in 30 seconds now yes. just a couple of days ago i was with a founder he's created this incredible product and service i sat with him in a room and i said you know i've done my research i know about it i have a story about it in my head but i want to hear your yep. story you tell yep. me an hour later he sat there <laughs> and to his credit to his credit he looked at me and he said we've been sat here for an hour I still feel like there's more I want to say, and I'm beginning to realize now why we can't write compelling copy. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, that that goes back to the point that, you know, this is Tinder. It's not eHarmony. So tell that guy, listen, if you were trying to find a date, are you telling me that it's going to take an hour for you to explain to someone why they should say yes? I mean, but you're going to be a lonely boy. Let's take that then. So you've got you've got this baby. It could be an idea. It could be a product. It could be a movement. Whatever it is, you've got this baby. You you've got an hour's worth of passion that you want to deliver, and you know you've only got thirty seconds worth of attention to deliver to deliver it in. Yeah. What is there a rule of thumb there about what gets included in that thirty seconds? Well, I think it depends on who you're talking to. Um, like, like if you're a real estate broker, you know how I would pitch it, right? I mean, you're, you're taking pictures of new listings. You want to create a flyer as soon as you can. You're tired of waiting for your corporate uh, graphics design department to do it. So you just want to do it, right? So if you're a product manager and you need to create an infographic, you're not going to wait anymore for your graphic design department to create an infographic. You just go to Canva and, you know, there's infographic template. So what I think I just heard you heard you say, and I want to, I want to double check this, is you take... What you did was you took the pain point. You took the opposite of what I want. You took the 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 emotion of pain and frustration and you put that into the first 30 seconds and then you basically said, you know, we deliver the solution to that. I would say that that is probably the most effective way. Um, the world can be divided into two groups, which is vitamins and painkillers. And I think that uh, 
a better solution is usually that you're a painkiller rather than a vitamin because a vitamin I mean <laughs> you you a vitamin which is going to supplement your life and make you supposedly better etc cetera, etc cetera, is often you know you're not quite sure right i mean it's not like you take one pill of turmeric or one pill of vitamin d and all of a sudden you're glowing on the other hand a painkiller to take an extreme example if you have a migraine headache let me tell you something <laughs> that is top of mind you want that migraine gone okay you're not thinking about is it going to clear up my skin is it going to be better you just like this someone pounding a nail in your head and you would pay almost anything you can to get that nail stop being pounded into your head in a perfect world you would be curing the migraine headache so i want to talk about democratization again because not everybody mm -hmm is lucky enough or not everybody wants to work in an industry or a space that's completely changing the game. Mm -hmm. Most people work in an organization that's doing what it does and hopefully doing it to a really, you know, top class degree. One of the things that I have noticed and I, I really would love your perspectives on is the ones that are doing it well at the minute and not necessarily democratizing a space, but democratizing the language. So they're coming in and going, and it's a similar talk we've spoken about before. Most people around here are using technical jargon, difficult to understand language, language that makes sense to them. I'm going to translate that language into the language of, of this target market and basically bottom line it for them. Those people tend to, in my experience, be the ones that are standing out, kind of leading the charge. Have you noticed the same? I think that that is generally true unless the product speaks for itself. And um, so I, I said... As a sidelight, uh, I believe in the concept of mantras, not mission statements. Ooh. So I think in two or three words, you should be able to explain whatever the product or service or you do. So if someone asked me, Guy, what is the mantra for your life? I would say empower people. So in two words, I can explain my life. And so you need to be able to explain in two or three words what your product does. Canva, democratize design. Duh. What else do you need to know? You th you, do you think Adobe could claim that Photoshop has democratized design? I don't think so. So two or three words, not to get specific, a small amount of words to, to be able to nail it down, whatever it is that you're trying to evangelize. Yep. It, can you nail it down that far? That's the opposite of, you know, being sat in a room for an hour hearing, hearing a story. And that sounds, the funny thing about simplicity is it's the hardest thing to get, right? Like uh -huh. you've got to wade through so much complexity uh -huh. to get to simplicity. And I oh, think- Oh, life's a bitch. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's a fallacy out there that this stuff should be quick, that we should be able to nail our story, nail our pitch, nail our- Well, uh, you know, it took me only 40 years to figure out that I empower people. So I, I, I would make the case that executive coaches and marketing agencies and all this kind of, you know, uh, they thrive in this trying to make it a complicated, whatever kind of study and focus groups and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I'm just not a believer in all that bullshit. Tell me the opposite of that. How do you do it? Yeah. If it's not that, what is it? Uh, I think you'd have to, you may have to cite the work of Malcolm Gladwell, who said that after you do something for 10,000 hours, 
just to combine some of his books, after you do something for 10,000 hours, you can do something in a blink. Uh, so it doesn't mean that, you know, it's kind of a off the top of your head statement. It really r- reflects 10,000 hours. So the fact that I can come up with uh, a two or three word description in minutes is the result of 30 or 40 years of practice. It's not, um, it's not because I have special DNA or anything. <laughs> but I love that. Like it's, it's something that you earn the, the ability to be able to filter through all of the information and go straight to laser and straight on. It's that it takes experience. It takes, you know, mastery and yep. you, you shouldn't expect it to happen in five minutes. No, but you also should not expect to have to pay for a marketing agency to lead you through it either. I want to just go, just, just go to that 40 years. So in that, I mean, you are, you are an epic storyteller. I've been a, a huge fan of your work for, for a really long time on the stage, in the written word. Um, and I was really surprised to find when I was doing my research that you, you, it didn't start off that way for you. You weren't comfortable on the stage. It wasn't something that you were like, yeah, get me a microphone. Nobody's comfortable starting out. Well, I think that people think that they are. I think that people see people on stage and go, they were obviously born for that or they have something I don't. Maybe Steve Jobs, maybe Elon Musk, but I don't, you know, I would say I'm certainly not in that category. So it, it took me, I have spoken, given keynote speeches 50 to 75 times a year for 20 something years. So I'm an instant success. Uh, You know, that's, that's, that's what it takes. And is the only answer to get up and do it again and again and again. I don't know if that's the only answer, but that's the only answer I've come up with. I mean, it's certainly, it's it's certainly not you know thinking that you're going to rise to the occasion and you can pull it off easily. No, I've never seen that work. You did have a piece of advice that I that I saw that I that I thought was very true, and that was you should never have any more than ten slides. Uh, that's great. Yes, ten slides, twenty minute presentation. Smallest font, 30 points. If if people, the, that would make the world a better place if everybody believed that. It also forces you into a storyteller mode. It takes you out of a narration mode where you're just narrating the slide and into the mode of a storyteller. You know, you know, the funny thing is I tell that to thousands of people and thousands of people agree with it. And then they show up with their pitch and it's got 50 slides, 90 minutes, and 12-point font. And the first thing they say when they start the meeting is, I've read all your writing. I really love what you say. I love all your recommendations. And then they open up a friggin' PowerPoint that is 50 slides, 90 minutes to take to present, and 12-point font. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> what can I say? I have never had a presentation that was too short. What's the best pitch you've ever seen? Oh, I, the, for me, the best pitch is always a demo. I mean, I wish you could just explain what you do and get into the demo. Uh, let me judge from that because all the other stuff is bullshit. All the, all the adjectives you're going to throw at me, all the, you know, all that. Just show me the demo. The, something else that you have said, which was 
if you're a leader, you should evangelize for your organization and what it has to offer. And you should feel comfortable playing that role internally and externally. And I think that that's a bit of a, a bit, a bit is a lie. I think that is a massive shift for a lot of leaders, like wherever you look on the chain. And the, the, the fear is, you know, I don't want to self-promote. I'm not comfortable being seen, making it all about me. But that's not what I said, though. Like, all right, well, tell me, tell me, have, am I misinterpreting? Is it? Well, I don't know if you're misinterpreting, but I, I am not saying that to take an extreme exaggeration of what you just said. I'm not saying that the CEO should say it's all about me. Um, I'm indispensable, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that the... CEO surely should believe that what he or she is evangelizing is good news. Uh, otherwise, arguably, why are you there? Now, this works in particular for companies uh, that have products and services that are consumer-facing. I, I cannot tell you that I believe that the CEO of Goldman Sachs is going to go up there and talk about the good news of Goldman Sachs because we have democratized private equity that just won't fly, right? So Goldman Sachs is about making rich white men richer. I guess you can't make them whiter and taller, but richer. The the stumbling block there, I think, you know, you've rightly said it's it's not, this is all about me. I'm making this all about me. How do you get over that feeling of, you know, I was hiding behind the brand. I was very comfortable there. I was doing my job. I was, you know, talking about the product, the service, and now all of a sudden I'm being asked outside of what feels like my job description to step out from behind the brand and start spreading the good news. Well, but I mean, a CEO who, if you're saying the CEO is, has been doing this job about the product and the service and, you know, all that leadership stuff, I, I don't see why this is such a big change if it is a change at all. Um, you know, I could tell you that, well, from the outside looking in, because I, you know, I wasn't that close to him, but I, I don't think Steve Jobs ever worried about his personal brand. So the, uh, we may be going down a rat hole here, but, you know, whenever people tell me, oh, I've, I need to write a white paper, I need to write a book, I need to be on the speaking circuit more, I need to position myself as a thought leader, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's all total bullshit that. I don't think that Steve Jobs or Elon Musk sit around saying, God, how do I position myself as a thought leader? Basically, they create great products. And guess what? The market positions them as thought leaders, not themselves. It's not because Steve Jobs wrote a white paper about the inherent advantages of the graphical user interface. He made a Macintosh. Duh. You've, you've talked about failure a little bit. And you've got this theory of drawing on the bullseye last which as someone who's been in the kind of the startup founder world for, for 20 years now, I just loved because that is exactly what it is. That is exactly what truth. happened. It's totally the truth. So can yeah. you can you just walk through that? Well, I mean, at, at some level, as an entrepreneur, you never really know what's going to succeed. Now, you may say you knew and maybe uh, you were right. I don't think even Steve Jobs knew. So, you know, if Steve Jobs didn't do it, you probably didn't do it either. And so what happens is that um, you you take your best shot. Often you are wrong. But lo and behold, your off-target shot hits something else. <laughs> you 
And then my recommendation is, first of all, you take the money and you declare victory. So what Silicon Valley is very good at is the ability to declare victory. So we thought with, with Macintosh, we had a spreadsheet database and we're processing machine. Come to find out we had a desktop publishing machine. Well, hallelujah, we declared victory and went after desktop publishing. We didn't plan desktop publishing. We had no foresight into desktop publishing. And, and I think that probably 90% of the successes in the world are like that. You know, I don't know. I'd have to think about someone who said, okay, so this is exactly what I'm going to do and ended up doing exactly that and was successful. Yeah, Google started as a consulting firm. Apple, you know, they're wrong so many times. Um, it's not, I think it's not where you start. It's how fast you move. I, there's so much in that that I love. Someone asked me the other day about, I was with some some uni students and asked me about my career. And I said, I can honestly tell you that anything that's ever worked for me has, and I've, I've spent time thinking about this, not a single <laughs> thing that has ever worked and, and taken me in, you know, when you look at trajectory points, has been something that I either planned, came up with, it was always because a strategy not that once? I, no, no, it was a strategy that I thought was smart that I showed up for and that had a very different imp impact than I thought it was going to have in a different place. And I just went, okay, and, well, and moved yeah. over there. I, listen, I never planned on being a public speaker. I never planned on being a podcaster. I never planned on being an author. I never planned on anything like that. You just watch for the breadcrumbs and pick them up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bake my own bread or, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Don't wait for the breadcrumbs. Bake your own bread. That's right. <laughs> and it also reframes as well the rather than taking action or not taking action from fear of, fear of failure, keeping an experimental mind, mindset. Well, uh, if we want to go down this rat hole, the people should read a book by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. It's called Mindset. And this is all about the growth mindset. So the growth mindset says you can face new challenges, you can learn new skills, you can go into new areas. The fixed mindset is, you know, your your abilities, your your knowledge, your skills is a fixed thing. So, you know, if you're this amazing such and such, the then that's it. You're stuck. If you're good at math, you're gonna be good at math and nothing else. And I just I'm not a fixed mindset kind of person at all what's what's been your favorite failure well i have so many um you know arguably failure or mistake you know i left apple twice you heard that I turned down steve jobs for another job i turned down the ability to interview for the first ceo position of yahoo right those four things right there is about two and a half billion dollars uh so i've I've made my share of mistakes. Don't get me wrong. And uh, But going back to the theory of uh, declaring victory, so at the start of my career, I was successful with the evangelism of Macintosh to developers and kind of generally evangelizing Macintosh. And at the end of my career, I'm chief evangelist of Canva, and Canva has... I don't know, 60 million, 70 million active users per month right now. And Canva is just going gangbusters. So guess what? As I look back, I'm going to tell people, well, you know, 
You see how good I am? Macintosh and Canva. They don't know about the 30 years between those two. <laughs> I was thrashing. <laughs> it's how you tell the story. It's right. Like, you know, like what if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, I'm talking about yeah, Macintosh and Canva. I'm not talking about the other four companies I started that you never heard of. I mean, I have a massive amount of respect for for Canva and and the founders of of Canva. How yeah. did but I'm curious, how did they pitch you? Because if I had to pitch you, I I don't think I'd even sleep for about a week prior to Well, first of all, I'm not that intimidating, but this was six or seven years ago, and they saw that I was using Canva. They tweeted me. Luckily, I saw that tweet, and I responded. They were going to be in the United States a few weeks later. We met, and the rest is history. I was not looking for a job. I, it's not like I you know, was, was uh, answering want ads or anything. They just reached out to me, and it clicked. And uh, I also, to tell you the truth, there was, uh, there still is, a woman that I work with who was using Canva very early. And she said, guy, this is really great. And I trust her judgment. So without her, I might not have even been interested in Canva. So Canva found me. I didn't find Canva. But there's something in there about just asking, the power of just reaching out and asking somebody. The, you mean them reaching out to me? Them reaching out to you, yeah. Like asking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what? You know, uh, you never know unless you ask. And like as a podcaster now, I'm a little bit on the opposite side of this, right? So I got to ask. I, gotta, I, you know, I asked Martha Stewart. I asked Michelle Obama. I mean, you know, I, I get rejected a lot. But um, the, the, it, it gets easier and easier. As a podcaster, it gets easier and easier. So luckily, I'm personal friends with Jane Goodall. So she was my first episode. And so, you know, when your first episode is Jane Goodall, you could tell your next guest, well, you know, you want to be in the company of Jane Goodall or not. And most people don't say, yeah, no, uh, I'm far more remarkable than Jane Goodall. I should not be on your podcast. I mean, you'd have to have really be a delusional person to say that. Is there a, is there a trick to the ask? You've just suddenly ignited my brain on that. Is there a trick to the ask? Because again, when you're asking guests, you've only got a couple of lines on an email. I would say there's several tricks. Uh, first of all, it's all about the subject line, and it is an email world. So tip number one is the quality of your subject line, because if, if that doesn't intrigue someone and make them willing to open it, for example, you know, a subject line that always works with me is, I love your podcast. When I see that subject line, I'm going to read that email. I love your book, right? I love surfing. Any one of those would work. So that's number one, subject line. Number two is uh, who makes the introduction. So if Jane Goodall asks somebody else to be on Guy's podcast, I mean, who's going to say, okay, Jane Goodall referred me to Guy. Guy must be a loser. Nobody. So it's it's using your current sort of friends and connections. That's the second thing. It's the referral as opposed to the code ask. That's the second thing. Third thing is, that the email should be about three sentences long. And I, like, I'm not one who's going to spend four paragraphs telling you why I'm such a great person and you should be on my podcast. At most, I would just say, okay, so I'm Guy Kawasaki. I have a podcast called Remarkable People. The guests include Jane Goodall, Margaret Atwood, Ariana Huffington, Martha Stewart, Steve Wozniak, Steven Pinker, Stephen Wolfram. Uh, Angela Duckworth, Bob Cialdini. 
And I figure if someone who gets that and doesn't take me seriously after that, screw it. It ain't going to happen. Um, I also put a link into my LinkedIn profile and I say, listen, you know, I'm for real. Click on this link. You can see who I am. So I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to. Now, I have the advantage that I may not know everybody, but lots of people know me. So the key to life is not who you know. It's who knows of you. And also what you just said there, which is similar to what you've said the whole way through this conversation is show, not tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I don't have to say I have really good guests. If if you read that list of guests, you, you got to be living under a rock to say, oh, God, you know, he doesn't. I I tell people, for, frankly, sometimes I tell people, listen, I have the best guest list in all of podcasting. I truly do believe that. I don't, maybe Terry Gross, but I'm right up there. I don't have Michelle Obama yet, but I, you know, I'll get her one of these days. So, and there's a good, there's a good ten seconds. I have the best guest list in the whole of podcasting. There's, there's like, there's yeah. a ten second. <laughs> but, but see that that is telling, not showing. That's not as effective. True. But if you back it up, yeah. If you back it up, if you say I, if I say I have the best guest list in podcasting such as Jane Goodall, Steve Wozniak, I wish I could say Michelle Obama or Barack Obama, um, then, because I, I, I'll tell you something, with total certainty, when I'm asked to be a guest, which happens every day, I look at who they've had, right? And so if they've had Gary Vee, if they've had uh, Seth Godin, if they had Steven Pinker, if they had Bob Cialdini, if they had Angela Duckworth, if they had those level of people, Martha Stewart, if, in other words, if they had the same kind of guests that I had, I take them serious. But if it's like, you know, John Smith, the founder of Smith Consulting Company, do I give a shit? <laughs> like, you know, and, and sometimes people like give me a list of, you know, the five people they've had on their podcast and I never heard of one of them. That's a bad sign. I mean, I'm like, that's not a good start. No, it's not a good sign. Um, and But I will tell you, though, that I also I have a soft spot for young beginning podcasters because I know how hard it is to get a guest. And I'll tell you a great story. This is one of the greatest stories in all of podcasting I'm about to tell you. So do you know who Angela Duckworth yes, is? Yes, I do. Okay. So I tried to get Angela Duckworth. I send an email to, I don't know, Angela at AngelaDuckworth.com. No response. Okay. So because of my predisposition to always agree to be on people's podcasts, I accept a podcast uh, interview and I get on the phone and I do the interview. And at the end, or no, actually I, I surmise this during the whole thing, um, I find out that I'm being interviewed by a 13-year-old girl in Alabama or Arkansas or something like that. And her podcast is called over the moon or the blue moon or something like that. Okay. So I said, so at the end of the interview, I said to her, so who have you had? She goes, Oh, two weeks ago, I had Angela Duckworth. I'm like my jaws on the ground. Right? She goes, like, you had Angela Duckworth. How did you do that? She said, I don't know. I reached out and you know, Angela Duckworth's thing is to help young people. So I asked this 13 year old girl in Alabama or Arkansas, can you introduce me to Angela Duckworth? She introduces me to Angela Duckworth via email and Angela comes on my show. So I got, Angela Duckworth, author of Grit, winner of the MacArthur Award winner, because I said yes to a 13-year-old girl in Arkansas or Alabama who I had no idea 
she may have five subscribers to her podcasts, but it was worth it. So, you know, for all I know, I'm going to tell you, okay, so I want, I really want to get to Jacinda Ahern. And you must say, oh, yeah, I went to uni with her at, in New Zealand. So you're going to get me Jacinda. I mean, who knows? I'm, I always play the long ball game. What I love about that, like if you need, a thir- don't need, but a 13-year-old girl to introduce you to, to Angela, like if that's a path that you are willing to take with all of the roads that, yes. that are paved, that you have paved, then there's no reason that anybody else can't play the long game, right? There's no reason. Well, I mean, maybe Joe Rogan doesn't have to play the long game. Maybe Terry Gross doesn't have to. but They would have some at some stage, however. Probably. Probably. I got just the last couple of questions here. Okay. Number one, the you have seen the democratization, and we've talked about what democratization means of so many industries in the in the span of your career. I mean, we took in we've talked about computing and Mac, information, Google, stories, YouTube, entertainment, Netflix, music, Spotify, design, Canva. That's just some a list that I wrote. I mean, that's the transformation of a lot of titans, right? What's what's the next space? Nobody knows. I don't know. I could tell you, you know, what might happen in the next six months, but anything beyond that, nobody knows. I mean, I thought MySpace would control the world. I thought Apple would fail. <laughs> okay, those are two good data points. Why would you ask me that question? <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody knows. I, you know, it's a question of 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 what of just listening to listening to the stories of that organization. Well, here, I'll give you a. Uh, I'll give you a. A useful tip about that. You ask somebody, your guests, to predict the future. And anybody who says they can and gives your prediction is someone you should ignore. That would be a good test. Kind of like the, uh, the I don't know, Harpo or Groucho Mark saying, I wouldn't want to be in a club that, any, that would want me. So um, when somebody says, yeah, I can tell you with total certainty that the future is cyber currency or blockchain or nfts that's the person you should run from when somebody says i don't know at least the person you're dealing with is honest yeah and actually just to just to add to that you know having watched and listened to a lot of futurists over the past 20 years you realize that you can watch a trend and you can see something unfolding and you can take an educated guess as to where it might go but knowing that's a that's a whole different thing. Yeah, nobody. If if they knew, they would. You know, <laughs> they, they wouldn't be on the stage they, talking about it anymore. They'd be on an island well, somewhere. Yeah. Well, that, that's true too. But I mean, if you get a guest and he says the future is cyber currency, then you ask him, well, so how much of your net worth is tied up in it, right? I mean, if you quote knew that Bitcoin was going to the moon, you would put everything in it. If you if if Guy knew that Apple was going to be a one trillion dollar company, guess what? Guy would have stayed. <laughs> All right. Well, for anybody who's who's in a space <laughs> right now, who is just like coming out of their mind with passion about how their product, idea, service, brand, movement is gonna mm-hmm. is gonna change mm-hmm. change the world. What's the one piece of advice or guidance seen as advice, obviously, isn't helpful? Just remember that the purpose of an organization is to create a customer. It's not to raise money. It's not to do planning. It's not to create jobs. The purpose is to create a customer. If you create a customer, everything else follows. 
if you don't create a customer and let's take an extreme, let's say you don't create customers, but you create jobs, you're not long for the world. So it is all about creating customers. Everything flows from creating customers and everything. So what does creating customers flow from? And that is finishing your freaking prototype. Get your prototype out. And then figure out how you're going to talk about it in 30 seconds or less. Well, that would be helpful. Yes. <laughs> well, Guy, I am, I have been, I'm thrilled that you were able to be on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.